and welcome to episode seven of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. My name is Kareem Farah. I'm the executive director and co-founder of the Modern Classrooms Project. And today we have an all co-host episode. So I'm joined today with Zach Diamond and Kate Gasco, And we're going to be really focusing on this idea of the shifting role of a teacher in a modern classroom. Now, before we dig in, I want everyone to know exactly what all of our roles are in the education sphere so you understand our perspective. So, Zach, can you share a little bit more about what it is that you do currently? Are you working with students? What's your role with Modern Classrooms Project? Sure. So my name is Zach Diamond. I am a middle school music teacher at D.C. International School, which is a public charter school here in the district. Uh, it's my fifth year in the classroom and my second year teaching, uh, implementing the, the model. Um, and this year, I'm also mentoring with the Modern Classrooms organization, which has been really rewarding. And I'm enjoying seeing uh, how my classroom is shaped by the mentorship that I give to other teachers and seeing how their classrooms are changing and improving. And it's really a rewarding experience. So I am working with kids, working with teachers, and uh, doing the distance learning thing. So every, everything's a little weird, but that's, that's where I'm at right now. Perfect, perfect. And Kate, can you share a little bit more about your sort of evolution in the education sphere? Yeah. So I was in the classroom, a high school history teacher at Eastern High School in Washington, D.C. public schools until last June. So um, when I walked out in March uh, after our school closure, I was walking out for the last time. Uh, They didn't know that at the time, of course, though. Um, Now I serve as the head of teaching and learning at the Modern Classrooms Project. And I love this role because I talk to a teacher, at least one, every single day. It's always the best part of my day. Uh, We work with teachers all over the country through whether that's district contracts or mentorship programs, uh, scholarship, fellowship, uh, the many ways that we that our work impacts teachers. Um, I usually get to work with those groups. And I also am teaching a course at George Washington University in their Graduate School of Education and Human Development to pre-service social studies teachers right now. Perfect. Fantastic. And just so everyone knows my background in the classroom before I founded the Modern Classrooms Project was I spent six years in the classroom. I I taught exclusively in high need environments, particularly environments that serve very diverse learning levels, similar to Zach and Kate. I mostly taught high school math, a little bit of career readiness Um, for six years. I I spent my first three years teaching traditionally in Hawaii um, and then transitioned to D.C. where I taught largely Algebra II, IB Mathematics. Um, And now I run the Modern Classrooms Project full time. So this particular topic gets me really, really fired up. And, and the main reason why is I think at its core, like our goal at the Modern Classrooms Project is to help shift the role of the educator in the classroom. And I think today we really want to dig into that fundamental idea of what we once thought educators were supposed to do and be and act like in a classroom and what we realize they should and can do in the classroom to make them more effective and make their lives more sustainable. So before we dig into sort of the shifts, let's really kind of uncover what we once thought the role of the educator was before we ever became Modern Classrooms educators or staff at the Modern Classrooms Project. So can you all share a little bit about how you thought the learning environment should operate and where you as an educator belonged pre-modern classrooms? And Kate, why don't you go ahead and start? Sure. I knew when I left my teacher, I came out of a traditionally certified program. um, So it was a a master's in education certification program. I knew that I wanted to be a teacher who taught with big ideas and taught social studies with inquiry. Um, it was it was very difficult once I had a classroom of my own to really 
make a lesson engaging for everyone, I quickly found. And I, I did my very best. I, I did teach traditionally. I taught the same lesson to everyone on the same day. And we went on to the next lesson on the next day. Didn't matter if you had missed it. We were, the class was moving on. And what I, I noticed that in my DCPS classroom, there was such a strong emphasis on classroom management. Um, and I kind of found, you know, that, that, that was, those were frequently the, the tips that were being shared, the articles that were being passed around about, you know, really how to, how to better manage your classroom. And I found that to have a, have this managed classroom for me being at the front, for me being a strong presence, this was kind of this is this was seen as a good teacher, um, but I could look behind the curtain and after the visitor left, and it might look really, it might look like I, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm in charge. There I am. Um, the kids are nodding. However, uh, I saw their work. I saw the exit tickets. I read their essays, and it was I just so desperately wanted to be able to hit the pause button for so many kids and say I wish we could try that again, or I wish we could meaningfully revise. Um, and then with another kid looking at him saying, I know you're bored. I wish, I wish you could fast forward me right now. Um, that was, so it was, it was out of that. It was just out of, I suppose we could say, looking at the data, I would say looking at their work in layman's terms that I was really seeing that there was a disconnect between this large and in charge teacher that had a really managed classroom and actual student learning. I'm curious what, what Zach would say. Yeah, you took the words right out of my mouth. It, yeah, I couldn't have said it better, honestly. I mean, my career in teaching started out, well, I right when I left college, I started teaching at a university in Peru, but I was working with adults, sort of like upper year undergraduate students. So these are people that are in their 20s and older. Um, and so my first year in the classroom, you know, the K-12 classroom in the U.S. was pretty much a, a, a reset on my teaching. And I it was it was a rude awakening, and I quickly understood that like ninety percent of traditional teaching is classroom management, classroom management, like capital C, capital M. It's a big thing, especially in the world of traditional you know teaching PD and that kind of stuff. And uh, that was what I thought it was. That's what I thought made a teacher good. Uh, I would look you know because I was there in my first year classroom. The kids were out of control, and I would look at the teachers around me in in their classrooms, the the really good teachers, and the kids were sitting quietly working. Um, at least it looked that way, and I was like, wow, that's a great teacher. Um, and that was sort of my conception of what made a teacher good. That certainly wasn't my own conception of good teaching in in school myself and even when i was teaching at the at the university with adults um it was more sort of content academic uh but but once i started teaching in school um it really it came down to classroom management and and that's what i thought of as being good like what made a good teacher you know it's so interesting because I, I think I thought about it similarly, and I don't know if I've necessarily thought about it in my head as classroom management, but I just thought about it as like, I'm a good teacher if my kids do what I tell them to. Right. Yeah. Which, you know, not, it wasn't always necessarily classroom management, but it was very, very sort of like, I'm the leader of the room. They do what I say. And if I execute that effectively, if whenever I say something, they do what I ask them to, then I've succeeded. The day was good. And it's such a weird concept why that was the case. But I think you all kind of uncovered why that is the case. And part of it is because teaching is actually just so challenging 
especially when you're a young teacher and a brand new teacher, you walk into the classroom and you can think like your goal is inquiry, PBL, mastery. But those first couple months, you know, you're you're just thinking like, how do I make sure things function smoothly? Right. For any first year teachers listening, you will you will make it. You will. There's nothing like the first year of teaching. I would not relive it for a million dollars. <laughs> By far the hardest year of work in my life yeah. and it doesn't even come remotely close yeah and no teacher no teacher could convince me of how hard it was either i didn't yeah uh, and wasn't prepared that's right that's right so you know the problem though with that is when something's super super hard you sort of resort to the bare bones that idea of classroom management that idea of like i just want my class to not be chaotic today and by the time you get past that i think it's pretty easy to kind of forget what actually high quality, you know, learning should ideally look like when you master the profession, right? Like, what is your ultimate goal if you could do it perfectly? And I think that's why our understanding of sort of the role of the teacher evolves over time. But it's also so different from where we want it to be sort of in the early stages of your teaching career and and pre thinking about the modern classroom project model, or any other model for that matter. So then this is what we thought of pre-modern classrooms. What prompted you to think that there was something wrong? Because, you know, if, if you're focusing on classroom management, you come in there every single day, you teach at a fixed pace, you lecture in, you know, 15 to 20 minutes, the kids hear you, they take their notes, they go on to the lesson, you know, no complaints by any admin. You're generally, you know, if there's test scores, your test scores are fine. Like all indicators are reasonable compared to your colleagues and compared to what you know about education. What made you all think, something's not right and we need to shift. For me, it was it was looking at my students who I felt were, you know, Kareem, our school, we, so Kareem and I taught together at Eastern High School here in DC and our school did have below average in-seat attendance. And what really got me thinking was what I'm doing isn't working for the, for the kids I serve. Because if a kid misses a day of school, misses a week of school for, you know, they have a lot going on. Um, There's, you know, there's a lot social, emotional, family, a lot going on. And if, if the kid is kind of out of the game after missing a week of my class, and if this is, and if this happens um, more than once, more than, and to more than one kid, I'm not serving the kids that I'm, that I've been called to work with, um, that I've been called to serve. So I think for me, it was really examining, um, where my most vulnerable students were and if my system was truly fair, that's what kind of got the wheels, the wheels turning for me in terms of there's gotta be a better way. What if I start using, what if I start using instructional videos? Right. And you know, when you say that, it, it makes me think of sort of this idea of you just kind of assume that the problems are the way they're supposed to be, right? Like you, especially if you teach in an environment where there's below average in seat attendance or students are really struggling with unique circumstances that are out of your control. You kind of hear these data points and you're like, well, that's just the way it's supposed to be. Like kids are not supposed to do well in class and kids are, kids are supposed to miss class and struggle to return. And you know, kids are struggling with disengagement and stuff like that. But I just like kind of take that as, as the status quo, because that's what I hear about. And that's what I see. And it's interesting how many of us 
kind of accepted that as the status quo and something we should just live with and accept. And you really have to push the limit and ask yourself, wait a minute, just because this is what it looks like in a lot of classrooms, or this is what I was told it was supposed to be like, is that something I'm comfortable settling with? Zach, what are your thoughts on this topic? Like what what kind of made your wheels turn? Yeah, I totally agree with everything Kate said. And that idea of a status quo, like I think that it takes it takes guts to sort of like follow your own intuition and be like, is this really working? Like I feel like I'm doing everything right, but am I really doing it right? Like this doesn't feel right. And my my experience with that was that I so I teach music and I teach uh project-based songwriting, really. And so the actual lessons aren't particularly high stakes in terms of the content because like kids have a lot of leeway with what they do musically because it's art, right? You can, you can have that freedom, but it's, you know, when I would teach traditionally, I would go into the classroom and I would stand and deliver the lecture, right? Like teachers do. And, and that was the worst part of my day every day in almost every class. And then after 10 or 15 minutes of like slogging through that, I would release them to do independent work on their songs. And I loved that part. Like I would wander around and like check in with kids, see who was doing what. Um, But I always felt kind of like, well, first of all, I have these two very different roles, right? As like the leader of the classroom. And then also as the guide who like swoops in just at the right moment. And they're very different roles. Um, But I also felt like there must be a better way to structure the independent time because, you know, still having the mindset that classroom control was what it was all about classroom management. Like I had a hard time sitting down with a kid when three other kids might be, you know, talking about uh, video games or not doing their work or not even misbehaving, just not engaging. Um, And so the whole like push for 100% compliance and all that stuff uh, sort of held me back in the independent work time. And that's what made me sort of want to find a new way of, of structuring the independent work time. Yeah, you know, it it was so interesting for me when I was in the classroom. I remember being so confused as to why I couldn't fix the problems I was seeing in my classroom. And part of this was frankly just like growing up in a privileged background where I feel like I was oftentimes able to like see a problem and then have the resources and the materials to likely be able to find a solution. And I also had a business background. And in business, like it's a lot about sort of like figuring out how to solve the problem and what's the bottleneck. And then when I realized I was in the classroom, I was like, the more I pour into this, like the more I'm trying to come up with a solution, I'm not actually seeing any real returns. Like it's not like if I put five extra hours of planning in tonight when I'm already planning an, an, an like absurd amount, that suddenly engagement's like spiking. It's actually not happening. There felt like there was a ceiling to my success and it wasn't that high. It was like I could just work a million hours a week, but still the 30% of my students that weren't able to come to class were not going to be able to engage in the material. The students were not finding my lectures particularly engaging. I was teaching to the middle. Like all these issues weren't being solved no matter how much harder I tried. I completely agree. I taught to the middle and yet... I didn't have a good pulse check even on what the middle was. Um, I, how many times did you have, did you think a kid was with you all through class and, you know, you release them to independent practice and we are good and you get that exit ticket and you look at this and you're like, oh, oh, we are lost. We are lost. (laughs) You know, it's, it's so, it's so, it's so hard. Um, yeah, I, I completely agree. I was, I would say I was teaching to the middle and I was 
guessing at what that middle was. I was, I would dread grading tests. Oh yeah. Right. Like every, every time, right. You grade a test and you sit there and you're in the teacher's line and we all know what this felt like, right. You grade the test and it's like, holy cow, this kid learned exactly zero things for the last three weeks. And I didn't even really know it. Like I actually thought he was learning something and I graded the test and nothing positive really came from this learning experience for the last three weeks. And what can I do to move the needle here? And I couldn't come up with a solution. And I think on that note, and I know you both understand this feeling, it's amazing how it felt like the responsibility only grew for me. Like I kept trying to solve the problem. I kept doing everything I could. I kept listening to all the advice. I wasn't seeing greater success. And I felt like it was continuing to fall on me. Like, Why aren't you improving test scores? Why aren't kids coming to your class more? Why isn't it more engaging? Like, it, I really felt like the responsibility continued to be on my shoulders as the educator to find a solution. And I did not, I couldn't find a single place where I was going to get an answer. And I found that to be so incredibly exhausting. And I think that's actually why I made the shift. I tell people all the time, I remember riding the metro here in DC. And I said to myself, like, I will finish the school year out, but if I can't find an alternative way, to meet my students' needs, I can no longer do this job anymore because I am continuously trying to solve a problem that I can't seem to find a solution to, and it is driving me legitimately nuts, and I couldn't get past it. I think it's it's interesting. I think we, we good educators, good educators really care about kids, and good educators are hardworking, and I think too often you combine that with like a larger culture sometimes of like, I think it's like simultaneous, like teacher blame and teacher celebration, you know, like a culture of like teacher is the silver bullet. So it's very easy. You combine, you combine the fact that you're hardworking and you really care and you combine the culture you're living in. And we take a lot on, we take a lot, uh, even things that we necessarily shouldn't take on because education has never, and will never live in a vacuum. It absolutely matters what our students had for breakfast that day. It matters what they had to eat in their first year of life. Um, it, you know, it, it, there's there's so many other factors, um, but it feels that as teachers, we have um, we're kind of it's a very public facing job in that people trust us with their children, and we see a lot of how society manifests. It just takes place in our classroom. Right. Um, it's, it's tough. We take a lot on. Well, and the constraints are constantly moving too, right? It's like, I mean, you wake up one morning, curriculum's different, right? Schedules are different. You have three preps instead of two, right? New principal, new assistant principal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's, it's, you know, it's one thing if you have a task in front of you, that's going to require 80 hours of work, but there's a clear light at the end of the tunnel and a solution. It's another thing to do something for 80 hours and feel like it's not getting that much better. That's demoralizing. And I think that's the core. And I think a lot of teachers feel that every single day and are seeking out solutions or are trying to sort of live with the status quo, which is frustrating um, and exhausting. So I think that's critical. So, you know, what I want to talk about next, the true sort of core shift that you felt like happened when you started implementing Mono, because hopefully I think everyone listening to this podcast probably knows what the Modern Classrooms Project model is. If you don't, I encourage you to check out our website or go to the first episode just to get a firm understanding of that blended self-paced mastery-based model. Um, but once you start implementing it, right, there's there's more macro shifts, right? There's like 
true shifts in the way learning actually happens that I think changes some of these really, really frustrating realities that we faced pre-modern classrooms. Can you all talk about sort of the biggest shifts structurally you saw in your role in the classroom after you started implementing? Well, I think the biggest shift is that I had to learn to be okay with the kids who were not 100% engaged 100% of the time. Um, that was sort of overcoming that conditioned uh, conditioned feeling of effective teaching meant effective management. That was the biggest shift, I think, you know, tangibly, visibly in my classroom was that kids weren't necessarily always working. Um, I don't think that that's at all bad. I think that that's the most realistic and uh, sort of like refreshing thing that a teacher can do for a kid because sometimes kids just don't care. Um and if we try and force content down their throats, they they start to hate us. Really, um, that that was my experience. That's why, you know, my the like my biggest takeaway from modern classrooms has been has been relationship building with kids. And it's because I don't like force the content down their throats as much. I think that they sort of res- respect that I respect their sort of humanity a little bit more. So so yeah, it's giving up this control over every single kid at every single moment was the biggest shift for me. Yeah, the shift, I'll be very honest, the shift was difficult um, because I had been seen as a good teacher. I had, I did really well on my evaluations. My, my kids liked me. Uh, you know, I had the respect of my colleagues. Um, why change this up? And I definitely asked myself that a few times in the first, like, in the first weeks of, um, of rolling out this model. I certainly remember. Oh, as you do. <laughs> Thank goodness you were there. Um, but it was it was this this idea of of giving up control. Um, because for me that control came from a good place. It came from like, no, don't don't put your head down. I want you to get this part. Um, it's important to me because I care about you and I want you to I want you to understand and I want you to do well in this class and I I want you to understand systems of democracy and, you know, X, Y, Z of all the things that social studies teachers want for their students. And then on top of that, of course, I want you to get a good grade and, you know, have get a good job and have a good future, et cetera. Yeah, it definitely does all come from a good place. There's no question. And every teacher knows that. But the kids, the kids like might not see it that way. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I think it was a couple things for me. It was, I think you, I think it was, it was um, Shane and Daisha did such a great job with that episode a few a few weeks back about how disengagement looks different in um, a self-paced mastery-based classroom than it did when we taught traditionally. Um, frankly, uh, it's very easy for a kid to be disengaged and be under the radar about it in a traditional classroom. So seeing the disengagement on display through, wow, this student is, it, it took them 40 minutes to do their notes what is going on? Um, I didn't get a mastery check today. Hello. What's uh, just really seeing that for the first time and, and thinking, I'm sure they were disengaged. (laughs) I'm looking at their grades in other classes and they're disengaged there too. Um, I just, I wouldn't have picked up on it when I taught traditionally. I wouldn't have picked, it wasn't as on display. I think so the, the shift from kind of a complacent classroom and also the shift that ultimately grew to be such a beautiful thing. And it was my favorite aspect. Um, but the shift from being like answer finders and doing work for completion to students who revised and mastered material, um, that was 
that was huge. Um, and students, uh, students struggle with that sometimes. Obviously, some students take to it really well. Um, but when I had 10th graders who had gone through all those years of school, and then they see that they need to revise, it's like, well, what do you what do you mean? I did that, but I did it. And it's, it's exciting and challenging to encourage that, that shift from, I know you did it, but now, now we're going to go back and make sure it's right. Um, we're going to take some extra time, review your notes and come back and try this again. Um, so I would say that those were, those were what I really, what I really noticed. They were hard adjustments, but they were worth it. Well, you know, the, the idea of giving up control is such an interesting concept and it is so fundamentally core to being able to implement the model. And I've said time and time again, I was a control freak. I was a micromanager. And what I think was so interesting about that approach is in retrospect, it was a short-sighted understanding of learning. It was, it was this feeling like if I could just execute this 45 or 60 minute class period correctly, the learning happened. But learning is like so much larger than that, right? And in particular, like the concept of revision is bigger than the concept of the three pillars of democracy, right? The, the concept that you will fail, you need to pick yourself up again, go find an alternative solution, ask a peer, and then show your mastery. Like that concept is so much larger than whatever the actual skill they're doing on that particular lesson is. And I think when I first started teaching, I was such a control freak. And I was so obsessed with today is lesson three and lesson three is how to find the arc of a circle in geometry that I had forgot the fact that it's not actually the arc of a circle that matters as much as my kids understanding how to solve problems in novel situations. And the only way to do that is to release control, right? A kid is never going to be able to solve a problem in a novel situation if when they're always solving problems, you're right there over their shoulder guiding them through the process. But it's scary. Like, it's just fundamentally scary because anyone who cares deeply about kids and has never done that feels like, wait, am I actually doing a disservice? Am I not doing my job suddenly? Yeah. Like, I'm standing here and my kids are learning. Like, wait a minute. Like, that's not what I know about teaching, right? That is such an interesting concept. We get emails all the time from teachers being like, wait, so what am I supposed to do during class? Yeah. Right? Because they feel this, like, energy, like, well, I have to micromanage. And it's like, no, you don't. You can actually let your kids work. One of my favorite things that one of the people who implemented this model early on said to me is, sometimes the coolest thing you can do for a student is model self-directed learning or self-regulated learning yourself. Just sit in the room and grade some papers and let them watch you be a worker or a learner, right? And see, like just model that behavior. And it was so interesting when that person told me that because I was like, oh, like it's actually good to sometimes just emulate hard work self-direction, problem-solving for your kids, and you want them to be able to do that on their own. Oh, yeah. You are a role model for them, role model for them. Like, they, they look up to you, whether or not they, you know, show it. They'll, they'll do what you do. So in terms of giving up control, um, I, don't, I remember hearing a lot of, like, quippy, you know, teacher PD sayings, things like, you know, be the guide on the side, not the sage on the stage, that, that kind of stuff, right? I actually think that, like, teachers do aspire to control their classrooms less. It's the ideal that kids will be self-regulated learners. Talking about the shifting role of the teacher, like part of the role of being a modern classrooms teacher is planning and structuring a lot uh, about the classroom so that the kids can do that. The amount of work that I did 
to control, to manage my classroom is actually a lot more than the planning and structuring I do now. Like the structure is pretty straightforward once you, once you get it. Um, and so the new role that I'm taking on now is like the guide on the side. It's actually really fantastic because like I don't have to spend so much energy and so much uh, just effort managing the kids. Yeah, I agree. And I think that I, I echo you wholeheartedly. I think that, yes, we, we don't want to be the sage on the stage. We want to be that guy down the side, so to speak. I've never heard that, but I like it. Um, I think when we shift from a teacher-centered classroom to a student-centered classroom, I think that's really scary, especially if you're in a high-stakes evaluation, um, you know, period, or if perhaps you haven't, if your administration, if you don't feel that they trust you, that can be really scary because... A lot of times I would even say school leaders might not, they haven't sat back and thought about, well, what might a, or district leaders, what might a student-centered environment look like? Yeah, that's that's another one. That's another one of those sayings, right? Yeah, student-centered. But what, is that, but what does that really mean? And yeah, I, would, yeah. I would say that a lot of times we, it, for a classroom to be student-centered, um, that has to be more than a buzzword, first of all, as does differentiation, because a lot of times the classroom management issues, so to speak, kids, kids oftentimes act out in class because something's not okay. Something's not okay with them socially, emotionally, or something is not okay academically. And it's work avoidance can take, you know, can manifest in many forms. And when I, when I found that in this in this model, when I could differentiate better for students, um, differentiate with pacing, differentiate with um, types of work I was giving, the we talked about we talk in the online course I know about um, must do, should do's, aspire to do's. I've seen teachers do mild, medium, spicy tracks of readings or some or skill work. Um, when when you can truly practice differentiation, that also can relieve a lot of classroom management issues and you are making this classroom student-centered rather than how was the teacher's performance today. Yeah. And you know, what, what it makes me think about is this idea that student-centered classrooms, I think student-centered teacher facilitator, don't be the stage on the stage, whatever those terms are, right. They, they're incredibly frustrating to hear if you don't know how to do it. First of all, Mm -hmm. yeah. I wanted to scream when I heard it the first three years. I was like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Like, how am I just like shifting control to the students? This makes absolutely no sense to me. So first, we need to provide real on ramps, which is like kind of the goal of the modern classrooms project to provide a teacher with an on ramp to get there. But then once you're there, I think the core of student centered teaching is you as the educator are sort of engaging in this constant exercise to uncover what each individual student actually knows and does not know and have that discussion with the kid. You become like a data miner, where instead of just like pushing out content, you're like literally looking at each individual kid as a unique student and trying to piece together what their needs are, what they're good at to create the conditions for them to feel challenged. I had zero time to do that when I taught traditionally. That was a huge problem. That's why when I graded papers, I was shocked when kids got some Fs and some Ds that I thought were learning. It's because I wasn't actually spending much of my day trying to understand how my student was relating to the learning experience, I was obsessed with whether or not my student was compliant with the learning experience. And that fundamental distinction was so, so important. And it was so revolutionary for me to then be able to share that data with the kids, right? To then be able to say to the kid, like, 
you haven't mastered lesson three, you've mastered lesson one and two. Just that fundamental concept. Like I'd never shared that with a kid before until I started doing this model. And I realized that I was doing such a disservice to my kids to not tell them that information, right? Because we want them to know that information because in the end, the number one most important driver of learning is the student themselves, right? Like all those studies that say, what's the most important factor of student learning, the teacher, the school environment, they all say student is still the most important factor in student learning. The most important external factor might be the teacher. But at its core, right, the student is the key element. And if we can inspire the student to take control of their own learning in a really healthy way, then we create a certain level of change that I don't think we could have imagined in sort of a traditional model. Yeah, yeah, totally. An- another another thing um, about giving up control and particularly giving up the lecture part of class, but giving up the sage on the stage uh, part of the teacher's role is that you become a more relatable human being. Like you're not, you're not wrangling kids anymore, trying to get them to do something they may not want to do. And I've talked about this on previous episodes and, you know, building relationships in a modern classroom is so much easier because you have the time and the sort of mental space to sit down with a kid and talk to them about either it could be a really deep conversation about a lesson and you're revising something that they did and it's like super high level academic conversation, or you could talk to them about why they like Fortnite for a couple of minutes and that's okay. Um, and you know, that, that's the kind of thing that I would immediately have shut down in my traditional classroom because, you know, I, I, I would feel sad about it. I would like want to talk to the kid about what interests them, but I'd be like, no, we have a lesson. You're not focusing. (laughs) Yeah. And, and I just feel like, you know, something that stressed me out about the whole, uh, guide on the side idea. And I keep coming back to that, but it's something that I heard a lot. And how could I be a guide on the side to 25 individual people, you know, in, in 45 minutes or 50 minutes. I don't, I can't in my head, I can't understand how a person could do that. Um, so this, this idea of like a classroom culture or a collaborative culture, you know, you can sit down with four or five individual kids and have a really strong conversation with four or five different kids on any given day, but all the other kids see you doing that. And they see that you're the kind of teacher who will, who will do that and who will, you know, honor the kid's voice and listen to what they're saying and not shut them down. And then the next day you'll come in and you'll talk to another five kids and have great conversations with those five kids and not feel, not have to feel that pressure. And then you'll have a classroom after a month or so where kids walk in and they're like, okay, I might not get to talk to Mr. Diamond today, but you know, he he'll listen to me if I have something to say, like I'm in a space where that can, that can fly, you know? Yeah. I think that, you know, being a history teacher, I do have to kind of contextualize like, Public schools really grew out of, at least in the Northeast uh, of the United States, they really grew out of like the Second Industrial Revolution, and this and 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 sometimes fear of immigrants. And uh, so it's really not it's not surprising then that sometimes our schools take on industrialization. You know, it's like it's an industrialized environment, a one size fits all. I stand up here and I deliver this on this day and you learn and that's just the way it is. And we're all going to come out the same. Um, You know, when we put it, when we put public schools in their, in their history, really, um, it, 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 it make it, because it kind of, it makes sense why they, why traditional teaching is the way it is. Um, But I, you know, we, we can clearly see it's time to revisit that. Yeah. And, you know, what is really, really fascinating about this concept is so often if you go on 
Twitter or anywhere and you think about what everyone says is the most important thing about teaching, they say relationships. Like, I, I don't know a single place where that's not priority number one now, right? Even though that may not be what it, at its core was the origination of school, like everyone says that. But then if you take a step back and you ask yourself, what advice could I give a teacher in a traditional environment to improve their ability to build relationships? I actually don't have very many pragmatic strategies. Like I could say, give some surveys and do some community building activities, but it's really hard to build relationships if you don't have the time to just get to know kids better, right? To give them the freedom to share their own thoughts, to give them the freedom to just be able to interact with you openly. Like that's so, so hard to do when you're consumed kind of putting on that performance, when you have all that pressure that it's kind of like bearing on you. And I feel like when I when I think back to that original question that we asked at the beginning, which is like, when did you know that something was wrong? You know, I remember Kate teaching at, at Eastern and kids coming into my classroom feeling clearly off, right? Like it might've been a traumatic experience. It might've been that they had a rough day. And I really didn't feel like I was investing enough energy in that reality and instead was just trying to figure out how to get them to be compliant in my classroom. Yeah, it was horrible. Yeah, and I would go home and I'd be like, what did I just like, did I just have a kid come in here with something way more traumatic than anything I've experienced and instead focus on making sure that within the first five minutes of class they do the do now, right? Like that is where my brain was at and that was sort of a cue to me that like, this is a problem bigger than I think it is for my students and for me. And I need to really shake things up. Yeah, it was terrible. Or, and it was, it, it really magnified if it was something that was school wide, um, you know, so some, or something community wide that was big, that we knew was going on. Um, and we knew was disruptive. Obviously we would address that and class might not look the same that day, but I, I started thinking about that you know, for all I know, a, a bigger event in the life of this student just happened. And this one is really off. And I, I can't, I can't pause. This is the one day we have to cover X. And I guess this student won't learn X because they're clearly distraught. Um, and that was, that was really, really troubling. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's the core to building a responsive classroom, right? Like, Inevitably, if you can build a responsive classroom, a student comes in and is dealing with something that's bigger than the content you're teaching, and you have the space and the time to actually respond to their needs. And it may not be that you sit down and spend 40 minutes talking it through with them, but that kid, when they walk into the classroom, kind of like what you said, Zach, and exactly what you just said, Kate, like they walk into the classroom and they say, like, I feel safe and comfortable here. And if I need to, I can share something with my teacher and I don't feel like I'm disrupting something larger. And that's just so important to cultivate for kids because kids go through such challenging things that are bigger than any lesson that we're teaching them on any given day. And if I need to take a beat today and do this lesson at home, I can find my teacher on this video. I can pause and rewind her. That's right. Well, this was another just in fantastic conversation to have with you both. I love talking this through and it makes me feel more inspired by why this model is important. And it also makes me think about just how difficult the job of being a teacher is. Um, and I can't end a podcast, you know, during this time without sort of sharing the importance of educators right now, recognizing how difficult their jobs are. As Kate said, as, as Zach said, we spend our days communicating with teachers and hearing about sort of your all's journey 
through the moment right now and during COVID, and you all have some of the toughest jobs on the planet. Um, there is absolutely no easy solution right now. I don't care if you're the greatest modern classrooms implementer in history or you're teaching traditionally. There is no easy way to navigate a mixture of remote, hybrid, or in-person instruction during COVID-19. So a shout out to every single teacher out there. Like, really, please understand that this moment is so difficult and there is no silver bullet. And we are just so in awe of the hard work that you all are doing. Yeah, and also... If I can add on to that, I mean, you interact with more teachers than I do, but teachers are are struggling. You're not the only teacher who's struggling. If you feel like you're alone, um, you're not. Teachers are struggling across the board right now, I think. I literally have not spoken to a single teacher. And Kate, I don't know if you have. I haven't spoken to a single teacher. Teachers that were, you know, exemplary in so many different avenues who isn't finding this moment incredibly challenging and isn't digging deep to figure out ways to engage learners and still not finding success sometimes. It's, it's really incredible. I just, the, the amount of how, how creative, inventive teachers are being in the face of something that is so, so difficult. I saw, um, or I heard rather an education reporter I follow today, uh, being interviewed, saying something to the effect of, you know, distance learning obviously brings schools into the home. And now she is at least hearing a lot of parents reflect on, wow, I, I didn't, th- I didn't understand everything that went into being a teacher. I didn't understand all the hats that they had to wear. Um, and uh, hopefully in our post, in our post COVID world, um, there's a greater trust and appreciation of teachers, especially after seeing um, just the the amazingly creative um, and just resilient people that they are. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, what a great way to end. We are here for you as much as we possibly can be. Um, our goal here at the Modern Classrooms Project is to just provide supports and structures um, so you all feel like you have something that can allow you to be more effective in the classroom, whether it's during COVID-19, but frankly, more importantly, when it's not covid and you're in person and, and true education is is happening at its best. Um, remember that you can always learn our model at our free course at learn.modernclassrooms.org. Our website's www.modernclassrooms.org. Our Facebook group is super, super popular. Check it out. It's a great place for you all to, you know, just share with other colleagues across the country who are also doing this model. And we'll make sure that's in the show notes. You can follow us on social media as well on Twitter at Modern Class Proj. We have a Facebook page, all that good stuff. Gaskill's at Gaskill underscore teacher now. She's rocking it on Twitter. Zach's at ZP Diamond on Twitter. Um, I'm at Kareem Farah 23. Um, and more than anything, share with us if there's more things that you want from us, if there's ideas that you have, there's ways that you think the modern classrooms can support you all in your journey to building learning environments that meet students' needs. Let us know and we may, you know, meet your needs as well. Like we are always looking for ways to improve as an organization to make sure that your lives are a more kind of sustainable environment where you can actually support students in the way that you want to. And Zach, I know you have a new blog coming out. What is the blog? Woo! How do people access that? <laughs> yeah. Um, so by the time this publishes, it should be live. Um, my vlog is going to be called Learning to Teach, which I was pretty proud of as a kind of a... I love you know, that. Yeah, that name. was the first time I heard the name too. And I think that's I awesome. I love it. <laughs> but um, the stuff that I want to write about, I have a lot of opinions about teaching, <laughs> teaching and learning in school. Um, but... 
you know, it's, it ties in with what we talked about here. Like, I, you know, like as teachers, I feel like we always want to be improving. We always want to be serving our kids in better and, you know, more broad ways. Um, and so just as I sort of go through this, I almost felt a little self-conscious bringing this up because I feel like everybody has a pandemic project, right? <laughs> They're taking something new on because we don't have a commute anymore or whatever. But like, I... I feel like I have a lot of things that are working for me and I've learned them not I haven't just they haven't come out of my head like I'm learning them from other teachers and I just want to put those things out so that more people can access them and um share what I'm learning as I as I become a a more mature and better teacher. So learning to teach it's at, it's going to be at learningtoteach.co and it should be up by the time this episode publishes. Fantastic. I'm excited to read it. I think it's a fantastic idea. You do have fantastic opinions about education. And frankly, I saw your class through this transition and, and you have really kind of transitioned your learning environment in a way that I think is so, so awesome. So I'm excited to read your thoughts. And Kate and Zach, have a wonderful rest of your night. Everyone who's listening, I hope you were able to find some useful information in today's podcast. And we will be recording every week. And we're excited to share more thoughts with you and let us know if you need anything. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Hey again, Kate here. Our teachers are the true stars of the Modern Classrooms Project, and we're so thankful for the love they send us each week to share with the national audience on this podcast. We got to work with the brilliant and truly kind science educator, Andy Maisley, this summer in our Modern Classrooms professional development. My name is Andy Maisley. I'm a physics teacher in Northern Virginia, and I'm a 2020 Modern Classrooms Fellow. The program and summer course was one of the best professional development experiences I've had. It has a ton of really valuable and actionable information, and it delivers it in a way that respected my time and also gave me lots of room to experiment and grow. It's been a career goal for a while to switch my classroom over to a mastery learning and blended learning model, and I really can't imagine a program that would have been a bigger help in getting there. I would absolutely recommend the program to anybody who's looking for a groundwork to build your own mastery learning and blended learning curriculum. Heads up for any physics teachers, Andy is so generous with his resources on Twitter. You can find him at Mr. Maisley, M-A-S-L-E-Y, and you can find us on Twitter too, at Modern Class Proj. And you can learn more about our model on our free course at learn.modernclassrooms.org. Have a great week. 